This is Moravian Mornings, a podcast discussing the history surrounding the Moravians who settled in Wachovia. Welcome to the first episode of Moravian Mornings. For our very first episode, we are going to discuss some Moravian customs and traditions. But before we get started, let's give a little background on this podcast. This podcast is the official historic Bethabra Park podcast. Bethabra was one of the first Moravian settlements in the Piedmont Triad area of North Carolina. This town was established in 1753. Along with discussing specific history relating to Bethabra, we are also going to discuss history relating to the neighboring Moravian towns as well. These other towns are Bethania, and as many more people know, Salem, known as Old Salem today. All are located in Winston-Salem. The Moravians bought and settled on a tract of land titled Wachovia in the Piedmont area of North Carolina. So when we mention Wachovian Moravians, just know that we're referring to the Moravians of Bethabra, Bethania, and Salem. One more quick fact before we start. Unknown to many, the Moravians are actually the first group of Protestants who predate Lutherans by about a hundred years. Now that we've done a brief overview of the Moravians, grab your coffee and let's get started. One of the most prominent features of the Moravian denomination is that they separated and lived in choirs. The choirs aren't the choirs we think of today. They aren't singing choirs. Choirs are essentially groups. The members of each group are all similar in sex, age, and marital status. The system originally came about in Hernhut, Germany in 1728 when a group of unmarried brothers established the first single brothers choir. Two years later, the first single sisters' choir was established. The system would eventually include choirs for girls, boys, single brothers and single sisters, married brothers and married sisters, and those whose partners had passed. In larger Moravian communities, there would be infant choirs as well. But Bethabra was too small with too little of a population. Each group lived together in their own house when financially possible. They ate meals together and they worshipped together. Choirs were essential, as Moravians saw these groups as their spiritual families. They're going through the same life experiences as each other, so it was crucial to live with and practice their religion with those going through similar life experiences. Each choir has a choir helper, which is basically the leader of that specific choir. I also need to mention that Moravians were enslavers. If an enslaved person became a member of the Moravian church and was baptized and given a new name, They would live in their designated choirs alongside the white Moravians. This was at least the case in Bethabra when the town was established and through most of the 18th century. Moravian women wore different colored ribbons to signify which choirs they were a part of. These ribbons were used to tie the ends of their caps together. The ribbons were also incorporated elsewhere in their attire, such as using ribbons to tie up their bodice. Little girls wore bright red, Older girls wore burgundy, single sisters wore pink, married sisters wore blue, and widows wore white. Around the time of the establishment of Bethabra, Moravians were beginning to switch to a nuclear family style of living, with single sisters and single brothers still living in separate houses with their choirs. There are a few reasons for this switch. Children were growing up in their choirs never seeing the roles they were supposed to play when married. They did not get to see their parents be parents and how they interacted with each other. When they married, they were not aware of the roles they each needed to play in the relationship. 
married couples actually had to be educated on how to be married and on what roles each of them played. Another reason, which is understandable, is that married couples just couldn't live together, and I'm sure they were upset with that. Ending the choir discussion on marriage is actually a good point to transition into your topic, Maisie. Why don't you discuss the lot? The lot system used by the Moravians is something you will probably hear us discuss several times in other episodes or when telling stories from Bethabara, so I'm just going to give you all the rundown so you know exactly what we're talking about. I'm going to start with a quote from Moravian Women's Memoirs, Their Related Lives, by Catherine Fall. In the 18th century, Moravians made frequent use of the lot in an effort to determine the will of the Lord in any situation in which their right course of action was not clear to them. They were convinced that they could, in this way, rely on Christ's guidance because of their acknowledgement of him as the chief elder of their church. After prayer, the elders would draw one of three lots. There were usually three possibilities, positive, negative, and blank. A blank lot was interpreted to mean wait. Essentially, the lot was used by church elders to make decisions about a variety of matters and was done so using a lot box that contained two or three scrolls or lots indicating an affirmative answer, a negative answer, and an answer that left the matter up to further consideration or discussion, with varying language depending on the question they were seeking an answer to. Depending on the question that was brought to the lot, sometimes only affirmative and negative lots were used. Us non-Moravians may think of this like a magic eight ball, but to the Moravians of the time, the lot was a way they could essentially speak with God and receive information telling them the direction to go with certain matters. Again, the lot was used in a variety of situations to help the church elders make decisions. For example, when selecting the site to build Salem, Brother Frederick Marshall, a Moravian architect, along with others, wrote out and selected several different locations that were brought to the lot. This process was noted in a diary at Pythabra. There was a conference but none of the suggested sites were accepted. Though no suggested sites were accepted, it did not take long for another suitable site to be found. Brother Marshall and several other brethren again rode towards the Petersbach and were fortunate to find an apparently suitable site near the Annenberg on the side toward the walk. This evening, in conference, we asked the Savior about it, and he approved, for which we are very thankful. As we can see in this case, the lot was not viewed as the luck of the draw. It was used as a way to seek approval or disapproval from God in order to make the best decisions for the community. The lot played a major role in shaping the daily lives of the Moravians. The church elders would approach the lot seeking answers regarding marriages, where worship places would be located, if a non-Moravian could be received into the congregation, land transferal, if the Moravians should move from one town to another, and even in selecting spiritual and financial leaders within a congregation. Another example, on April 19, 1786, the Elders' Conference met to consult the lot about the new Gemeinde House for Bethabra. Moravians stopped consulting the lot sometime in the 19th century. The use of the lot played a large role in some of the church's biggest decisions that had major ramifications on the Wachovia community. 
1769, Bethabara buys its first enslaved person, a man named Sam. The church elders decided to buy their first enslaved person after drawing an affirmative lot when they asked if they should purchase Sam. Later, in 1771, the lot would also decide whether or not Sam would be baptized, and after receiving an affirmative answer, church elders went to the lot to decide which name he should be given. Six were presented to the Savior, and Sam became Johann Samuel. The elders would also consult the lot by asking if the Savior felt that a single brother and a single sister should be joined in matrimony. If they received an affirmative answer, the single sister would then be asked if she would be interested in marrying the single brother and had the right to refuse. If they received a negative answer, the single brother would either make another suggestion or the choir helpers would choose a second potential bride, which I think leads us into the next topic that Casey will cover, education and marriage. You mentioned how church elders approached the lot seeking answers regarding marriages within the community. Moravian men were typically in their 30s when they were able to marry. Women were around this age and probably younger, but before the lot was approached, there was a whole process that needed to be completed. Men and women needed to meet certain capstones in their lives for them to be able to marry. Men specifically had to be able to prove that they could support a family. This process they go through starts with when they're young and education is crucial. I'm going to start at the very beginning of their education. I'm sure that the age that Moravian children began attending school varied depending on their location and their town needs. But there are records that give an idea of what age Moravian children in Wachovia started their schooling. There's one section in Volume 1 of Records of the Moravians in North Carolina where an Adam Spock and the wife of Peter Fry took their daughters, nine and six years old, to the school at Bethania. So the youngest age children could attend school in Wachovia was most likely around six years old. Boys and girls were educated separately. However, a school for girls might not have always been available in Bethabara, which could explain why the two daughters of Adam Spock and Peter Fry were brought to the school in Bethania. The enslaved community was able to receive an education if they expressed the desire and if they had converted to being a Moravian. For example, Johann Samuel, the first enslaved person purchased by the Moravians that Maisie mentioned earlier, he expressed a desire to know the Savior and he began lessons so he could read and study the Bible. Enslaved children could also receive an education if their parents belonged to the Moravian church or if the Moravian enslaver wished for them to attend school. They would be educated alongside the white Moravians. With their schooling, children learned a multitude of different subjects, reading and writing in German, and later they learned how to read and write in English. They had Bible studies, they learned math, they had music lessons. Education was highly encouraged, but it also wasn't free. Parents, whether enslaved or white, had to pay if they wanted their children to receive an education. And enslavers also paid these fees for their enslaved people to attend. School fees ranged from six pence to four and two shillings, depending on if a child attended the boys' or girls' school and if they attended for a full or half day. These expenses likely helped pay teachers stipends, supplies, and wool to keep the room warm during winter. The educational schooling for Moravians would typically end around the age of 15. 
At this age, the children, including the enslaved Moravians, all moved into the single brother and single sister choirs. White Moravian boys around this age would often become apprenticed to a tradesman. They then needed to work their way up, becoming a journeyman and eventually a master tradesman in charge of their own shop. This process took quite a long time, so it makes sense that many of the men were in their 30s when they were finally seen fit to be able to marry. And now that we're at the topic of marriage, I'll move on to discussing marriages within the Moravian community. Years later, once men reached the milestone of becoming a master in their trade, they could approach their choir helper about being considered for marriage. The choir helper would determine if the individual was ready for marriage and was wishing to get married for the right reasons. There were multiple factors that went into determining if a single brother was ready for marriage. Along with having the title of a master tradesman, a man was determined ready based on his disposition, his bodily constitution, his family, and external circumstances. If a single brother was found ready, the single brother's choir helper would approach the single sister's choir helper and suggestions of single sisters would be made. Single brothers could also have a single sister in mind when wishing to marry and could inquire about the specific sister in mind. This preference would be considered first. If all agreed that the couple would make a good match, the proposal would be put forth to the lot. If the blank lot was drawn, the single brother could make another suggestion, or the choir helpers would choose a second potential bride. Single sisters always had the right to refuse any marriage proposals. They could be 90 years old and thriving in the single sisters choir. Marriages more often happened to meet the needs of the community, so many of those marrying weren't really in love. Not saying that some weren't in love, but so many marriages just took place due to community need. The Moravian faith also strongly encouraged marriage, but did not require it. So a single brother didn't have to necessarily marry if he didn't want to, and a single sister, as I mentioned earlier, always had the right to refuse a marriage proposal. However, single brothers who held certain positions within the community were required to marry. Positions such as minister, the doctor, tavern keeper. It was seen by the church elders that due to the circumstances of these jobs, they needed to marry, making it unoptional to remain single. In all cases of marriage proposal, the lot was addressed. Maisie, this is a great time for you to discuss love feasts, since love feasts were often held to celebrate marriages. Love feasts are another Moravian tradition that we will probably be referring to a lot, so I think it is a good idea to also touch on this subject. Adelaide Fries, a former archivist for the southern province of the Moravian Church in North America, defines love feast in the glossary of the records of the Moravian in North Carolina as a religious service founded on the agape, or the meal in common of the early Christians. It is largely a song service, during which the members share a simple meal, usually bread and tea or coffee. The Moravians brought this tradition of sharing a simple meal together, which they often referred to as Liebeschmal, when they first arrived in Wachovia. The modern Moravian church knows these meals as devotional services composed of hymns, a spiritual message, and a simple meal of a spiced bun and sweetened coffee. Moravian love feasts have evolved into more of a tradition, whereas originally, Moravians would have known love feasts to be an important part of their spiritual lives. Love feasts were held for many different celebratory occasions. 
Love feasts were held on many occasions to welcome friends or to speed them on their homeward way, in honor of a birthday, at a gathering of spinners or harvesters, at any time, indeed, when the Lord's blessing was desired on a semi-social gathering, as well as in a regular church service. It was always marked by a simple meal, usually bread and tea or coffee, by hymns and prayer, with such additional features as the occasion demanded. Moravian church records also indicate that each congregation member participating in love feasts should pay a small fee to attend. On October 8, 1753, 15 Moravian brethren traveled from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, heading towards North Carolina. Over 40 days, they traveled 520 miles down the Great Wagon Road with six horses and a wagon full of supplies and arrived at the northern border of Wachovia on the afternoon of November 17, 1753. They then followed a road to the boundary of their track, then cut the new road, the remaining two and a half miles, to a cabin built and abandoned by, by a hunter named Hans Wagner, on land that would soon come to be known as Bethabra. Here they celebrated their safe arrival with a love feast. Brother Kerningsdorfer led them in a hymn that he composed for the occasion that stated, we hold a rival love feast here in Carolina land, a company of brethren true, a little pilgrim band, called by the Lord to be of those who through the whole world go, to bear him witness everywhere, and not but Jesus know. Following the first wedding ceremony in Bethabra on July 18, 1762, in which seven couples were married, the newlyweds, along with some of the single brothers in the town, attended a celebratory love feast. It is recorded in a Bethabra diary in 1787 that the marriage of single brother Johannes Ackerman and single sister Barbara Christman on June 12th was celebrated with a happy love feast. As for the food and beverages served at love feasts in 18th century Wachovia, these varied. The 1753 Bethabra diary entry discusses the first love feast taken by brothers in Wachovia on Saturday, November 17th when they first arrived at the new settlement, but doesn't mention specific food or beverages. It is assumed that at this first love feast, the brothers brought food and drink with them. On November 21, 1753, the Bethabra diary mentions a love feast consisting of cornbread, which was taken prior to the First Moravian Communion in North Carolina. Other diary entries reference specific food and beverage items that were served at love feasts. January 4th, 1754. Two brethren continued preparations for tapping the maple trees, so that we may make vinegar and some molasses for use in love feast. February 8th. For the first time, we had love feast bread baked half flour, half cornmeal. November 4th. There was love feast with tea and bread. November 30th. At 5 o'clock was love feast, and we used for the first time bread made from the flour ground in our own mill. In 1754, on June 18th, Reverend John Jacob Fries writes in a diary letter, We kept the love feast with the journey cakes and afterward a blessed communion. A summary from the Wachovia Church Book, as archived by Fries, documents a Christmas love feast. December 25th, 1760. On Christmas Day, the English children from the mill came to see our Christmas decoration. They were so poorly clad that it would have moved a stone to pity. We told them why we rejoiced like children and gave to each a piece of cake. 
In Bethania, Brother Etwine held love feasts for the 24 children there. At the close of the service, each received a pretty Christmas verse and a ginger cake, the first they had ever seen. The Salem Congregation Council on December 4, 1789, decreed, as recorded by Cruz and Starbuck, Coffee shall be served at the Christmas love feast instead of the tea hitherto used. The coffee love feast should be on Great Sabbath on August 13th, on November 13th, at Christmas, and at the close of the year. If the 13th of August comes in very hot weather, sangaree, or a mixture of water and spiced wine, may be served. The consecration services in 1800 of the New Salem Gemeinhaus drew one of the largest love feast crowds in early Wachovia, approximately 2,000 people. Diarist recorded the event. Beer and buns were served, and the buns, of which 1,000 had been baked, must be cut in half to serve all of the people. And on April 1st, 1819, the Salem Congregation Council decided that love feasts would always be served with coffee. Along with love feasts, the tradition of candlelight services in the Moravian Church originated in Maribor, Germany, in 1747, when lighted tapers were given to children during Christmas love feasts to tell them of the love that fills the heart of Jesus which ought to light a flame of love in each child's heart. This tradition spread to other Moravian congregations and was first upheld in Wachovia in 1762. The 1772 Salem Diary mentions another instance in which children within the community celebrated a Christmas Eve love feast, and at the close they received lighted candles and sung a sweet ave and hallelujah to the infant Jesus. The candlelight love feast tradition continues as mentioned in the Salem Diary. December 24th, 1775. In the evening, at 6 o'clock, 14 children had the Christmas Eve love feast, at its close receiving written verses and lighted candles. This tradition is still seen today in modern Moravian church Christmas love feasts in which lighted beeswax candles trimmed in red crepe paper are present. For over 200 years, Moravians have celebrated many occasions with love feasts. I would also like to quickly point out that the presence of and importance of coffee seen in Moravian love feasts throughout history actually gave us inspiration for the name of this podcast. Since we view coffee as a traditional breakfast staple, and the Moravians love themselves some good coffee, Moravian Mornings was born. Next week, we'll be speaking with the Director of Historic Bethabra Park, Samantha Smith, and the Education Director, Diana Overby. When we recorded this episode, Samantha Smith was the Director of the Park, but now she's the Director of Community Engagement and Digital Learning at Old Salem. This has been an episode of Moravian Mornings, a Historic Bethabra Park podcast. If you have any questions, or would like our hosts to discuss certain topics, please email us at moravianmornings at gmail.com, or message us on our Instagram page, also titled Moravian Mornings. Thanks for listening. Auf Wiedersehen.